you please uh, <clears throat> stand with me uh, for the reading of uh, God's Word. Uh, the scripture reading for today is Psalm 8. Uh, to the choir master, according to the Githith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes. You, you, still, <clears throat> you still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May our Lord add his blessing to this reading, hearing, and understanding of his holy and infallible word. Please uh, do be seated. <clears throat> I've uh, given this uh, message the title, How's that Excedrin headache? Uh, and I feel you may understand that a little bit more uh, as we go along. Uh, last week, when I filled the pulpit, we looked at an introduction to the names of God, and more specifically, dwelling on the importance of knowing God's names. Uh, we learned that names uh, are important, and that in ancient times, uh, names and titles usually meant more than what they mean today. Uh, they were more than uh, just what one was called by. Uh, they revealed important information about the uh, individual, the place, or uh, the thing itself. And we saw that most of us uh, also have several names uh, to which we may respond. Uh, you could be uh, say Jim to friends and relatives or you may be Mrs. or Mr. Smith uh, in a more uh, formal setting uh, or mom to your children or sweetie to your spouse and the list goes on and on. So uh, the way various names and titles uh, are used uh, often speaks of relationships. Uh, for the men and women of the ancient uh, Near East during the uh, biblical times, uh, the very existence of a person uh, was tied up in the revelation of their name. Uh, many names back then were uh, infused with uh, purpose, uh, authority, or uh, character, uh, and to really know someone's name was uh, to enjoy a special access, a, a special knowledge because names were often thought to reflect uh, a person's destiny. Uh, because of the depth of God's character, he has various names that reflect the many ways that uh, he relates 
uh, to man. Uh, knowing God's names, you know, really knowing uh, those names, uh, opens the doors for us uh, to know His character uh, and allows us to be able to experience uh, His power more uh, deeply and more fully. And God has a name for every circumstance and situation uh, in which we may find ourselves and for every person, every purpose in which uh, we may find him. Uh, he reveals many of his names to us uh, so that we can gain different perspectives uh, on who he is. Now, one name by itself uh, cannot fully uh, represent his majesty and power. Uh, one name alone uh, doesn't fully tell us all we need to know about uh, this uh, this being that we refer to uh, as God. <clears throat> Knowing God's names is critical to our comprehension and application of the strengths and victories that come through his multi-dimensional nature. God wants us to come face to face with his significance and his substance. But besides all this, why else should we know the names of God? Uh, as a reminder from last week, uh, there are three uh, principles to keep in mind regarding the name of God. We are commanded to honor it, we are commanded to fear it, and we are commanded to praise it. God's names are hallowed. They are to be honored, respected, and treated with the reverence they deserve. When we live in a covenantal relationship with God, we become accountable for reflecting his character. When we are, as we say, in Christ, we bear his name, our behavior, publicly and privately reflects upon him when we take the name Christian. We must remember the commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Fearing God's name empowers us to walk in his way and in his truth. Fearing his name is the key to living an abundant life and fulfilling our destiny. God's name and subsequently Christ's name brings protection and provision. But the key to accessing that protection and provision is to know his character and esteem what his name implies. implies. To fear and revere God's name is to fear and revere God. It is to take him seriously. We are to honor and fear his great name. When we know and experience his names, we find the power to not only face life's circumstances, but also to rise above them in the abundance of his mercies and grace. And lastly, to know the names of God is simply based upon the inherent greatness of his name. We are commanded to praise his name. Now, the first uh, verse and last verse of our scripture reading today says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
in this uh, setting, uh, especially when David looked up, he was totally awed by God's creation. He recognized the supreme majesty of God's name. There is simply no denying God's handiwork as he opens up the skies for, so that we can behold all the exquisite beauty uh, of his mountains, his glaciers, lakes, rivers, and wildlife. It's all bathed in the splendor of his pure sunlight. The names of God convey his intrinsic majesty and glory. Uh, his name is nothing short of pure grandeur. Discovering and experiencing the manifestation of his names uh, in our lives will steer us directly into the presence of our great majestic God and thus help us understand how to praise and worship him more effectively. Now, the Bible begins with a simple but profound declaration of faith. In the beginning, God created. A simple but very profound pronouncement. In the beginning, there was only God. There was nothing else. Everything subsequent that comes everything subsequent that comes to be. All there is comes as the result of God's action. This word God, uh, the fourth word into scripture in Hebrew is the word Elohim. The literal, tra literal translation is the supreme one or a strong one, mighty one. Uh, one of its usages of about uh, 2,570 times in the Bible. It occurs 32 times in the first chapter of Genesis and three more times in the second chapter. Until then, we see the name Yahweh appear as well. And there's a few times where we even see uh, the combination of Yahweh Elohim, meaning Lord God. So in the beginning, God, meaning Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. That one line at the beginning of time reveals a deep character quality of God. He is the creator. This is God's introduction to us, his prelude. It is the first impression of himself that he offers to his creation. In essence, God is saying, Hello, I'm Elohim. An early Christian philosopher, Aurelius Augustine, later to be known as Saint Augustine, well, he probed into this glorious mystery of in the beginning. And he raised the question, How was it done in the beginning? Uh, to us, in the beginning, might uh, almost sound like the start of a fairy tale, once upon a time. Uh, the trouble is that in the beginning, there was no time. Uh, <clears throat> as we understand it uh, to be in, in that uh, fairy tale, uh, you know, once upon a time. Uh, we think of a beginning as a starting point somewhere in the midst of a period of uh, history uh, at some point in time. Uh, in the fairy tale, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, 
Uh, Jack had a mother and he had a cow. Uh, his story, this is a story that began once upon a time. But, did not, but it did not begin at the absolute beginning. Before Jack, there were farmers and merchants. Uh, there were rocks and trees and horses and tulips and, yes, cows. <clears throat> so might I ask, what was there before the beginning of Genesis 1? The people that God created... Uh, Adam and Eve, they had no parents. They had no history book to read uh, because there was no history. And, you know, before the creation, there were no mothers or cows or farmers or rocks, trees, tulips, etc. There was nothing, of course, except God, Elohim. So before the world began, there was nothing. But what in the world is nothing? Have you tried to think about nothing? Uh, now I'm uh, starting to get a wee bit of a headache. Uh, just a tad. But where can we find nothing? Obviously, nowhere. Why? Because it is nothing. And nothing doesn't exist. It cannot exist because if it did exist, it would be something and not nothing. Are you uh, starting to get a headache too? You know, think about it for a second. I can't tell you to think about it because nothing isn't an it. I can only say that nothing just isn't. So how can we think about nothing? Well, we really can't. It is simply impossible. If we try to think about nothing, we always end up thinking about something. As soon as I try to think about nothing, I start to imagine a lot of empty air. But air is something. It has weight and it has substance. Uh, I know this because I know what happens when a nail punctures a tire and it becomes flat. So air was there. The great theologian, theologian and preacher, uh, Jonathan Edwards, once said that nothing is what sleeping rocks dream about. Well, that doesn't really help us much either, does it? Uh, so we are left with a problematic and obscured understanding uh, for the meaning of nothing. We often comprehend creativity as involving uh, the shaping and forming of clay, or painting on canvas or putting musical notes on paper uh, or some other substance being fashioned uh, but can we find a painter who paints without paint or a writer who writes without words or a composer who composes without notes <clears throat> artists must start with something what artists do is shape, form, or rearrange other materials, but they never work with nothing. St. Augustine taught that God, Elohim, the strong one, created the world out of nothing. The theological term for this is ex nihilo. God brought about the existence of everything once there was once there was nothing. Uh, 
then suddenly by the mere act of God there were the heavens and the earth there was a universe and again we ask how did he do it the only hint the Bible gives us is that God called the universe into being I say this because uh, in uh, verses uh, of Genesis shortly after uh, that beginning statement we see God's own statements of his uh, creative action those statements being let there be X, Y, Z, so to say. Augustine called this act the divine imperative or the divine fiat. We know that an imperative is a command and so is a fiat. It is a command or act of the will that creates something. And God's fiats are unlimited. He can create by the sheer force of his divine command he can bring something out of nothing he can bring life out of nothing he can and has done this by the mere sound of his voice so we vision that the first sound uttered in the universe was the voice of God Elohim commanding let there be and yet it is a little improper to say that this was the first sound in the universe because it seems that until the sound was made there was no universe for it to be in uh, Elohim shouted into a void into well nothing uh, so now uh, there's a little more headache here God commands God's command itself uh, created uh, its own molecules to carry the sound waves of his voice farther and farther into space, uh, shall I say, into uh, infinity. Now, <clears throat> it's uh, more one more notch to the headache here. But think, sound waves would take too long. The speed of this imperative from Elohim certainly exceeded the speed of light. But think again, uh, light didn't even exist yet. Uh, headache, anyone? As soon as the words left the Creator's mouth, uh, things began to happen. Where His voice reverberated, where it echoed, stars appeared, you know, glowing in unspeakable uh, brilliance uh, as if in a tempo to uh, yet to be uh, songs of angels uh, the force of his divine energy was literally splattered against the sky like a kaleidoscope of color hurled from a painter's palette <clears throat> vision uh, comets crisscrossing the sky flashing their uh, fiery tails like giant 4th of July bottle rockets how awesome it must have been. In this dazzling display, God, Elohim, created the first event in history. He created the heavens and the earth, and he gazed at his blueprint and shouted further commands for the world to be set, night and day, the seas and land, the fields and orchards, the living things teeming in the waters, the air and on the ground, and God saw that it 
was good. Then God scooped up dust of the earth and carefully fashioned it. Uh, he lifted it gently to his lips and breathed into it. He breathed his own breath and it began to move. It began to think. It began to feel. It was alive for it was man stamped in the image of its creator. Yet it began to worship. And yes, it began to worship. And I quote, And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Let's fast forward a bit and consider the raising of Lazarus from the dead. How did Jesus do this? He did not enter the tomb where the corpse was laid out. Uh, he did not need to administer uh, CPR or any uh, you know, mouth-to-mouth efforts. Uh, he stood outside the tomb at a distance and cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And behold, blood began to flow through the veins of dead Lazarus. Brain waves started to pulse. And in a burst of life, Lazarus left his grave and walked out. That, brothers and sisters, is fiat creation. The power of the divine imperative in raising the dead from the grave. Some modern uh, theorists believe the world was created by nothing. Note the difference in saying the world is created from nothing and saying the world was created by nothing. In this modern view, it's like a rabbit coming out of the hat, but without a hat or even a magician. This modern view is far more miraculous than the biblical truth. It says that nothing created something. And more than that, it holds that nothing created everything. Now, that would uh, be quite a feat indeed. Uh, So there are uh, really those, uh, so are there really those out there in this scientific age uh, claiming that the universe was created by nothing? Well, yes, there are. But maybe we shouldn't use those exact words. However, they do say the universe was created well by chance like by some random event yet even they cannot explain it any further Uh, but chance is no thing it has no weight no measurement no power it is merely a word we use to describe say mathematical possibilities yes possibilities Uh, chance can do nothing It can do nothing because it is nothing. To say that the universe was created by chance is to say that it was created by nothing. And to me, this is just intellectual madness. Uh, It's a headache. St. Augustine understood that the world could not be created by chance. He knew that it required something or someone with power the very power of creation. It needed to be very powerful indeed to get the job done. 
He knew that something cannot come from nothing. He understood that somewhere, somehow, something, someone had to have the power of being. If not, then nothing would exist now. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. The God we worship is the God who has always been. He alone can create because He alone has the power of being. He is not nothing. He is not chance. He is the pure being. He is the real thing. He is the one who has the power to be, and He has it all by Himself. He alone has power over death. He alone can call worlds into being by fiat, by power, by the power of his command. Such power is staggering. It's awesome. And it is deserving of respect and humble adoration. Just look at God, just as God is the creator of the entire universe, he is the Lord of the whole universe. No part of the world is outside his lordship. This means that no part of our lives are outside of his lordship. He is unescapable. He is inescapable. We are inescapable. There is no place we can hide from him. Not only does he penetrate every aspect of our lives, but he penetrates it in majestic holiness. First impressions are often lasting impressions. Why did God choose to introduce himself as Elohim, the creator, the strong one? One of the primary reasons could be that from the very beginning, he wants us to recognize that he is transcendent, meaning he is distinct from his creation. He is unlimited in his presence. God Elohim is not incorporated into his creation. He is not a tree or a mountain or a rabbit. Rather than being part of his creation, Elohim is in part above and outside his creation. Another reason God introduces himself as Elohim is to let us know that he is apart from the constraints of time. When we read, in the beginning, God created, we see that God created the actual beginning. He created time. And if God created time, then God preceded time because he couldn't have created something that already existed. If time didn't begin until he created it, then he must have been present before it. And so, anyone need something for your headache? When we discuss time, the concept of time, we tend to think of it as linear, in a, a pro, as it progresses from beginning to end. And that creates a problem for us because we can't fit God inside time because God exists outside of time. The only thing we are aware of is that outside of time is eternity itself. 
Time is not a constraint with which we must contend. Time is a constraint with which we must contend. But it is not a problem for God. This is why scripture uses the language of eternity when referring to God. God is not limited by time. He lives in eternity. Uh, Anything more to help that headache go? Well, in addition to God being in eternity, scripture also refers to God in the present tense. You and I have a yesterday, and we also have a tomorrow, Lord willing. We have these tomorrows because we are subject to time. But God has neither a yesterday nor a tomorrow. Everything for God is right now because he has no past, he has no future, he has just the right now, the ever-present God. And I say, thinking too much about all this sort of headache is really getting up there when we consider the next thought. You know, when we enter heaven, we will know the right now God. We will experience what it is like to have no night, no measuring by a clock, no passage of seconds or minutes or hours. All things will be now, whether they are simultaneous or a million years apart. Everything forever will be right now. The bottom line is simply that Elohim, the strong creator God, is transcendent of time. And to top it off, Elohim transcends not only time, but also transcends space. He comes before the things he has made, both the heavens and the earth. Before Elohim created mankind, he created a location, space a space in which mankind could exist. In order for Elohim to create this space, he had to be outside of it himself. Yet, you and I experience only the heavens and the earth. We cannot comprehend anything beyond them because we exist in a defined space. Yet Elohim existed when space did not. Therefore it stands that God not only transcends time, but he also transcends space and matter. Everything that we see is tied to matter. Matter is the substance of everything we have, everything we know. In order for God to be outside of time, space, and matter, he must exist in another dimension that isn't tethered to our time, space, and matter. Therefore, God operates in another realm. Uh, This is precisely why you and I can't figure him out. We are not of his realm, not of his dimension. We cannot conceive all that his dimension contains. We are trying to look at his dimension from the perspective of our dimension. Yeah, wow, what a headache. (laughs) Maybe I just need to lay down. But some theologians uh, refer to Elohim as 
the holy other, which can be defined as something of which we are not aware. Yet a closer look at the names of God constructed from the root word Elohim reveal a God who also abides in the realm we do know. The prophet Jeremiah gives us a glimpse into this delicate balance of God's presence uh, in uh, chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. They read, I am a God who is near, and that is translated Elohim Mikarov, declares the Lord, and not a God far off, translated Elohim Merachok. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do not fill the heavens and I, do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. <clears throat> this passage reveals that God is both transcendent and he is intrinsic and in and inherently here. He is here and he is there and he is everywhere. God, uh, God Elohim created the heavens and the earth while existing outside it. Yet Elohim also fills the heavens and the earth thus existing in it. He is innately everywhere. So, uh, <clears throat> for your headache, or at least mine, does anyone have some Advil? Maybe even a little stronger? With all this about God being here, there, and everywhere, we might be tempted to think of him as uh, some do, like an energy source. Uh, yet, the name Elohim doesn't mean God is anything like that. The Bible would never say, you know, may the force be with you. Uh, in fact, when we look at uh, the first few verses uh, in uh, the first chapter of Genesis, uh, verses 3 through 5, we see the name uh, Elohim associated, from very, associated with some very personal uh, attributes. And God, Elohim, said, let there be light. And there was light. And God, Elohim, saw that the light was good. And God, Elohim, separated the light from the darkness. God, Elohim, called the light day, and the darkness he called night. God said, God saw, God separated, God called. Uh, each of these actions clearly reveals a very personal and engaging character of God. <clears throat> Elohim is not merely a spirit floating around in a fairy tale of Never Never Land. He is what I would call other dimensional, but he is also intensely personal. And even more, later in Genesis, we see God walking in the garden and calling out to Adam and Eve and seeking his creation. As uh, Elohim, God personally interacts with his creation. He, <clears throat> we do not live in an impersonal uh, universe, a detached, separated universe. We live in a universe with a God who relates to us. Yet he is above and beyond us. Uh, he is 
but it is also with us. Uh, many uh, people that embrace the theory of uh, evolution believe the universe has no supreme being or God uh, with whom we can cre uh, relate. They think that we as humans just interact with nature uh, or even with unidentifiable forces. But our universe is personal because Elohim is personal. And in addition uh, to Elohim being personal, we look, we, as we look specifically at the Hebrew word uh, Elohim, we see that it is actually plural. Many theologians hold that uh, Elohim is actually uh, the plural, uh, vi vision, plural version of the word El, E-L. Uh, the interesting uh, aspect of this plural word is that it uniquely refers to a singular Godhead. If we look uh, further in chapter 1 of Genesis, uh, verses 26 and 27, uh, here we see that it says, Then God, Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God, Elohim, uh, created man in his own image. In the image of God, Elohim, he created him. Man and female, he created them. Then if we look at the well-known passage in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 10, verse 17, uh, this says, For the Lord your God is God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. Now, if we insert the literal uh, Hebrew translations for the words Lord and God, it reads, For Yahweh, your Elohim, is the El of gods, and Adonai of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome El. Now, scripture uses both plural and singular pronouns when referring to Elohim. The words of Elohim are usually described with singular verb forms. So Elohim is a plural word by construct, but it is often a single word by usage, revealing thus the unique, the matchless makeup of the Trinity of the Trinity. You know, God is a plural being, although he exists as one God. <clears throat> Our God uh, sometimes introduces a concept uh, at one point in uh, the Bible and then explains it later. Uh, we call this a progressive revelation. Uh, in this case, we find the plural form of Elohim in Genesis without more specific clues about the Trinity. We just know that Elohim refers to more than one. You know, later, as God's revelation proceeds, he explains the Trinity uh, more fully. <clears throat> so that by the time we reach the New Testament, uh, we read in Matthew chapter 29, uh, verse 19, that says, Go forth and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. Now we finally see three distinct persons in one essence. Those that make up the plural name of Elohim. It's difficult for us to completely comprehend how uh, three uh, can also be one. Yes, it becomes a headache. Uh, picture this as maybe a, a reasonable uh, illustration, uh, but really even not uh, an acceptable comparison. You know, think of a pretzel. Although a pretzel is comprised of one piece of dough that is then formed into three uh, interlocking and overlapping areas, it also has three distinct holes or open areas. These three holes are uh, separate, yet they are connected to each other by the one pretzel having at least one wall common to each other. Yeah, it's a bit, you know, more pounding. Uh, and if we look back at Deuteronomy again, uh, that verse I read, uh, for Yahweh your Elohim is the El of gods and Adonai of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome El. It is this word El, this is the one God name given to the promised Son and Messiah that we see uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7, which uh, begins, you know, for unto us a child is born, and then a while later it progresses to say, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, translated L. El is also used as part of the name Almighty God, that name being El Shaddai. Uh, this is the name uh, of God under which God made great and mighty promises. Uh, he made everlasting covenants uh, to Abraham uh, in the 17th chapter of Genesis and then to Jacob in Genesis 35. Uh, but let's also note that another word uh, from which some say Elohim is derived is the word Allah. Don't get upset about Islam with that. But the word Allah means to declare uh, or swear. Uh, thus, it is uh, said to indicate uh, some degree of a covenantal relationship. But before uh, looking more at this uh, derivation, it may be well to say that in either case, whether El or Allah, the concept of the omnipotence of God is directly expressed. You know, to make a covenant implies that one has the power uh, and the right to do so. <clears throat> in this case, with Abraham, it establishes uh, the fact of absolute authority that God has as the creator and ruler of the universe. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham because there is no being that is greater. No person or being is capable of making this covenant. Our triune God 
uh, is essentially uh, swearing an oath to himself as if he is saying by myself I have sworn or uh, should it be by ourselves we have sworn uh, yep the headache goes on and actually in Genesis 17 we see both these uh, derivations and verse 1 says I am God Almighty translated El Shaddai walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant Allah between me and you and may multiply you greatly and then in verse 7 it says and I will establish my covenant Allah between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God translated Elohim uh, to you and to your offspring after you that is God Elohim is to be with Abraham and his descendants in a covenantal relationship and with regard to you know, Israel as a nation over and over again it is written in scripture I will be your God Elohim and you will be my people and Isaiah uh, 40 uh, verse 1 reads comfort comfort my people says your God translated Elohim it is the eternal Elohim who covenants for us and with his Israelite people as well as for, uh, for us uh, and with us and he will keep his covenant so Elohim uh, this creator uh, this uh, Trinity Godhead rep represents uh, himself or if you please themselves as being under the obligation of an oath to perform certain conditions this triune Elohim covenanted not only with the creation but as the Godhead he or they uh, also uh, covenanted within uh, himself uh, or themselves uh, concerning the creation the entire creation animate and inanimate therefore is not only the work of Elohim but is also the work of a covenant that Elohim guarantees the creation the creation's preservation uh, and redemption the use of El in the plural this Elohim is wonderfully consistent with that great and precious doctrine of the Trinity and so there is a blessing uh, and comfort in this uh, great name of God Elohim it signifies God's uh, supreme power his sovereignty uh, his uh, glory uh, on the one hand and for thine meaning Elohim is the power and the kingdom and the glory while on the other hand signifies a covenantal relationship that he is ever, ever, ever faithful to keep the promises that he has made and so it seems uh, that God is saying he is promising I will be God translate Elohim uh, to you 
And we should respond as the psalmist did in Psalm 91, verse 2, when he said, My God, translated Elohim, in whom I trust. And so regardless of whether I forced a headache on you, uh, there really should be no headache in knowing God's names, to really know His names. Knowing His names is uh, to experience uh, His true nature. Uh, God reveals uh, that level of uh, intimacy with with Himself to those who humbly uh, depend on Him as their Redeemer. We are told in Scripture that God will not share His glory with another. Uh, we are, uh, and, and also uh, we must humble ourselves if we really want to know Him. And just for this reason alone, if not uh, for any other, as believers, we should hunger uh, to understand uh, the significance of the names of God's uh, names of God. Uh, his name, no matter the context. Uh, no matter uh, the literal Hebrew uh, or Greek uh, translation, no matter anything, his name is great and he is worthy of our praise. Like an earthly father, our Father God in heaven, our Elohim, the strong one, the creator, he must rejoice when he hears his children praise him with the use of his name. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your holy and infallible word. How blessed we are, Lord, that through your word, through the holy scriptures, you have given us your names in ways that can help us grasp a measure uh, of your being you know, no matter how small uh, a measure that may be uh, you allow us uh, to uh, seize upon you know, some degree of uh, understanding of your nature and uh, Father as minute as it may be uh, you allow us to realize uh, your power uh, your dominion uh, and your holy glory. So Lord, uh, without your word and thus without your names, we could not uh, come to know you uh, as we should. Uh, so we thank you, God, Elohim. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.